Hello and welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, where each week we talk about the importance of ministry leadership and some specific ways that we can be more effective at the task of leading the ministries where God has placed us. Uh, this last two weeks on the podcast, I've been involved in a three-week series on stewardship, our church finance, our ministry finance. Uh, why three weeks? Well, because I get so many questions about this issue. People asking me uh, questions about raising money, about spending money, about uh, how to create budgets, about uh, how to develop more people who support ministry financially, all kinds of questions like that. And so the first week we focused on modeling stewardship and talked about the importance of you as a leader being a model in this area. And then last week I talked about developing stewards in your church, uh, outlining some principles and processes by which you can develop stewards over the long term in your church to create a financial base and really create a financial powerhouse of giving that will sustain the ministry into the future. But now today, to close out this three-part series, I want to talk about uh, how God finances his work. In other words, where does the money come from? Why does it come at the time it comes? And what can we learn about this process, and how can we cooperate with God in the process of him providing for his work to go forward? So, how God finances his work. Let's start by uh, laying out this conviction. God owns and controls everything. Now, God owns everything by creation. In Genesis 1-1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Revelation 4.11, the Bible says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So from Genesis to Revelation, literally, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible underscores God's creative act and the fact that God owns everything. He possesses it all because he's the creator. But God also owns everything by redemption. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. And so while God owns everything by creation, he owns those of us who are his children by redemption. So in a sense, we're doubly bought, uh, we're doubly owned, we're, we're doubly possessed. So God owns everything by creation and redemption. And then second, God controls everything. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 12, the Bible says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. God controls everything. Everything in heaven, on heaven and earth is his. his he, he's exalted over all, and wealth and honor come from him. So we start with this foundational conviction. God owns and controls everything. He owns everything by creation and redemption, meaning those of us who are his children are doubly bought, doubly possessed, doubly owned, and then God owns and controls everything. Everything in the universe belongs to him. He's over everything. And wealth and honor will be distributed as he directs. Uh, 
So that brings us to a very significant question. Since God owns and controls everything, why do Christian ministries experience need? Why do we ever have to ask for additional resources to be given? Why do we have shortfalls in budgets? Why, why do we have projects that we'd like to do that are unfunded? Why do Christian ministries experience need? Well, this is a puzzling question for me because, frankly, if God owns and controls everything, there must be some purpose in the need he allows. And so over the years, I've learned a number of different reasons why God allows need, and I'm just going to share a sampling of those on the podcast today. First, God allows need to build our character. God, for example, is trying to teach us contentment. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, the Bible says, Paul writing, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. And that's a great phrase, learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Paul said, being in need has taught me how to be content. And I had to learn contentment, and the only way you can learn contentment is to face circumstances where you have less than you think you need, and you have to learn to manage on that amount or learn to be satisfied with that provision. Another way that God allows need to build our character is by teaching us eternal values. In Matthew 6, 31 through 33, Jesus said, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God allows need sometimes to simply remind us that a lot of the things we lust after or think we must have or possessions that we think will satisfy really won't. And he's trying to get us to redirect our energy toward eternal values and to trusting God for our future rather than trusting what we can amass or obtain to sustain us. So God allows need to build our character. Second, God allows need to correct financial irresponsibility. First, God allows need to correct bad giving patterns. In Malachi 3, 9 through 11, the Bible says, You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. One of the reasons why God allows need is to correct our giving. The hard reality is, particularly in the American church, uh, evangelicals give less than 3% of their income each year to Christian work. That's a, an abysmal number. And one of the reasons we have need is because people are simply in rebellion against God in their giving patterns. They're giving so little that they're causing ministries to suffer because of lack of resource. Just imagine this. Imagine if your church or ministry had three times its current income, three times. Well, if American Christians would just give a tithe, just the 10% of their income, that's sort of the foundation of Christian stewardship or Christian giving. If American Christians just gave the 10%, we'd have three times the resources we have right now to do our work. 
So God allows need to correct our giving to show us that the problem is not lack of resource. The problem is those resources are being spent and misspent on wrong things. And because of that, people aren't giving. And because of that, ministries have significant need. God also corrects financial responsibility by allowing need to correct our foolish spending. Now, this is not the purpose of the parable, but the parable of the prodigal son helps us with this principle. Uh, In Luke 15, picking out some phrases, it says, After he had spent everything, no one gave him anything. He came to his senses. Now, again, that's, that's not the total focus or purpose of this parable, but I think tucked within the parable is this insight. Uh, the prodigal came to the end of himself when he, realized, when he ran out of resources, ran out, ran out of money, and no one else would help him. So the absence of resource was caused by his foolish spending, and his financial responsibility needed to be corrected, and part of the pressure God allowed to build in his life was the fact that he ran out of money and found himself in a destitute situation. So God allows need to correct financial responsibility. He corrects our giving patterns and he corrects our spending patterns, getting our attention by allowing need in our lives and refocusing us. You know, this can also happen to a ministry. We can find ourselves failing to give or be generous with what we have, but more importantly, we can find ourselves spending foolishly the resources God has given us. Now, for most ministries, foolish spending does not mean that you're wasting the money on frivolous activity or, or uh, frivolous uh, items. You're, you're not mostly in most ministries uh, buying condos on beaches or fancy airplanes to fly the pastor or the leader around. While that's a rare occurrence in Christian circles, it's pretty rare. Uh, it's not the common way we misspend. The more common way we misspend is just by incrementally over time spending too much money on maintenance and not enough money on the mission that God has given us or the focus of the mission that God has assigned us. A few years ago, uh, we had an economic downturn here in the United States, and as a result of that, uh, we went to our seminary a community and said, we need to reduce our budget by about 10% going into next year. And I ask every department leader and every person who manages money to look into their budget and to find ways that they could cut 10% out of their spending with the least impact on our mission. And then I ask them to look across the seminary at perhaps other departments and to say, and here's a place where I just don't understand why we're spending the money, and, and I think we could reduce there. And we took the compilation of what people said about their own department and what they said about the seminary in general, and we reduced our, our budget by about that amount. To our surprise, our effectiveness was not diminished. We continued to accomplish the core responsibilities we had. Our academic program stayed strong. Our recruiting and marketing efforts stayed strong. Our our fundraising efforts stayed strong. What I learned from that experience was that we had waste in our budget and that we needed to root that out and make sure that what we were spending was really focused on our mission. So in a sense, the economic downturn that we faced really helped to correct some foolish spending that we didn't even know we were doing, but was revealed and shown to us by the need that we had to address. Well, a third reason that God allows need is to teach us to trust Him to provide. We have an ever-present need to keep our focus on God as our provider. In Philippians 4.19, the Bible says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And Proverbs says that abundance properly received from God is never a curse. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. Ministry leaders have to continually refocus on this great truth. God is our provider. And so when we have need, 
Uh, it's tempting to try to browbeat people into giving more or guilt them into giving more or blame them for not giving more. And certainly, as I've already said last week in the podcast, we have an ongoing responsibility to both model and train people to be Christian stewards. But when we're facing need, it's important for leaders to recognize God is our source and provider. I know that I work in our seminary where we have denominational funding and additional funding from donors as well as funding from tuition that students pay. Sometimes the denominational funding sources are disrupted or people want to amend those or change those and sometimes uh, you know, donors pass away or their financial situation changes and they're not able to give as much and so these consistent and faithful revenue streams uh, seem a little uh, shaky at times or perhaps open to some significant change and that creates some anxiety for me. And I find myself saying, well, God, what if that happens? What if we lose that money? What if that money doesn't come? What will we do? And then I'm reminded, God is my source and provider. And I find myself back on my knees saying, God, if this funding source goes away or this person no longer can give, I'm going to keep trusting you, keep depending on you, and keep asking you to intervene on our behalf because our focus is on you as our provider. So why does God allow need? Well, God allows need to build our character, correct financial responsibility, and to teach us to trust him to provide. But I saved this last one for last because, for me, it's been one of the most significant reasons why God has allowed need in ministries that I lead. And that is, God allows need to keep us on his timetable. Now, one of my favorite passages of Scripture about this issue is Acts chapter 24, verse 27. I was reading this verse in the Bible one day in my devotions, and when I came to it, I literally laid my Bible down and I prayed this prayer. God, what were you thinking? What possibly could you have been thinking to allow this to happen? Well, what am I describing? Well, in Acts chapter 24, a man named Paul, who was at the time the most effective Christian missionary on planet Earth, and probably, it's fair to say, the most insightful Christian theologian that's ever lived, that man was lodged in a Roman prison where he had been waiting for two years to be released. And while he was waiting to be released, or the reason he was waiting to be released was because the Roman ruler wanted a bribe that Paul refused to pay. And then this key phrase, when two years had passed two years. God, what were you thinking? That was my prayer. Why would you let your most effective missionary and your most effective theologian languish in a Roman prison for two years? Well, there's reasons. Uh, Paul was writing a lot of the New Testament during that time. He was wait, God was waiting for the time to be right for him to go to Rome. There's a number of reasons you can find as you continue reading the life story of Paul. But the point I'm trying to make today is simply this. Sometimes God allows need. Paul needed to be let out of prison, but God said, no, you wait in prison for a while. God allows need. You know, sometimes in the Bible, when Paul was in trouble, he prayed and he got an earthquake and got out of prison. You can find that in Acts chapter 16. That's a great story. He went into prison, he prayed, had a worship service, an earthquake came, they all walked out free. In fact, more than that, he turned it into an evangelistic meeting and led the jailer to the Lord. But in this, this second story that I've mentioned today, he stayed in prison. And so my second prayer after God, what, what were you thinking, was this, God, why no earthquake? 
I mean, why no earthquake? St. Paul, I'm sure he prayed, I'm sure he worshipped, but no earthquake. My point is God allows need to keep us on his timetable. Now, as a leader, I often see things that our ministry needs to do, or I see things that I believe God wants us to do. And sometimes I see those things months or even years before they come to fruition. And I often pray, God, let us do this. Provide the resources. Show us how to get it done. And no resources come. The money is not available. The people aren't available. The opportunity dries up or the opportunity is delayed. And I'm frustrated by that. But then I remember, God allows need to keep me and to keep the ministry I lead on his timetable. We've just had a remarkable example of this here at the seminary for a couple of years or more. We've been praying and talking about launching a Chinese-English bilingual program to train uh, Mandarin speakers in either their native or heart language or in English, whichever they prefer. And so to do this, we needed a significant gift to launch the program, to hire the faculty initially, do the marketing, recruiting, and all of those things until enrollment grows enough to sustain the program. And in order to do a major program launch like this, you need a, about $500,000. And so we've been praying and asking God for this for a while. And at the same time we were doing that, of course, the seminary was relocating. Well, the seminary relocation took a lot of time, energy, and focus. And so while we were praying and working toward this Chinese-English bilingual program, uh, really not much was happening. But then the seminary got to Southern California, and we had our big grand opening gala celebration to, uh, um, to mark all that God had done and to launch us forward in our new location. And the next day, the next day, a person came to my office and said, I know you've had a passion for this Chinese-English bilingual program, and you've been praying about it, and I've heard you talk about it. Now that the seminary's here and ready to go forward, I'd like to give you $500,000 to launch that program. And I marveled again at God's timing. God had the resource, I had the vision and the dream, but the vision and the dream and the resource all needed to come together at the right time. And so I've learned over the years that one of the, one of the ways that God allows need, or one of the reasons God allows need, is to keep us on his timetable. So God owns and controls everything, but he allows need. So then the next question is, how does God meet the needs that he allows? And the answer is, God meets these needs through tithes and offerings from his people. Now, some ministry leaders say, well, but what about fundraising activities? Like, shouldn't we do bake sales and car washes or silent auctions or bingo nights or something to try to raise money from the people to do God's work? And the answer to that in almost every case is no. It's no, because the biblical pattern of how God meets needs is through the tithes and offerings of his people that they've learned to give as a part of a discipleship process that includes stewardship development. Now, there are several reasons why, uh, well, uh, there, there are several ways this works in church ministry, and I want to talk about those in a moment. But first, let's just walk through a, a pattern, if you will, of how God does this. Um, and to do that, I want to use the story of the offering in the Old Testament to build the tabernacle. Now, a brief history lesson. Uh, God established his people through Abraham. And then, years later, his people went into slavery in Egypt, and they stayed there 400 years. 
And then they came out of Egypt into the promised land, and as a part of that process, they were told to build the tabernacle. So, brief overview. God established his people through Abraham. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They came out of Egypt, went into the promised land, and were tasked with building the tabernacle. So, with that basic story in mind, here's some detail. This story teaches us that God's provision always precedes need. In other words, God has provision stored up to meet every legitimate need he directs a ministry to fulfill. God promised the provision for the tabernacle before the need for the tabernacle's construction arose. In Genesis 15, verses 13 through 14, God told Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. That's quite a promise. Your, your people will be enslaved for 400 years, and then at the end they will come out with great possessions. So what happened? Well, in Exodus chapter 12, there's verses 35 and 36, the Bible says this. As they're leaving Egypt... The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. That is breathtaking scriptural insight of what happened there. These slaves for 400 years who had nothing went to their Egyptian masters and said, we want everything. And the Egyptians lavishly piled on them silver and gold and material for clothing, and the Israelites walked out of Egypt with all the resources imaginable that they would need for their future, for their future project of the tabernacle. God's provision precedes need. God promised the provision, he stored up the provision, and at the right time, he provided the provision. In fact, his provision is beyond that. His provision is abundant when it comes. When they started receiving the offering in Exodus 36, verses 6 through 7, the Bible says, And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Isn't that amazing? The leaders had to say, Stop giving, stop giving. We have far more than we need. Just stop giving. And so God's provision precedes need. And his provision is abundant when it comes through the tithes and offerings of his people. Now, the offering is a part of worship service, at least in many American churches, that has been diminished or devalued or even eliminated. I go to churches these days and I hear people say, we don't receive an offering, just place your money in a basket or a box if you'd care to give on the way out. Or people say, you don't have to give today, uh, there's no reason for you to give unless you're a member and then you, you want to give or want to be supportive of the church. Uh, I, I don't understand this kind of reluctance about receiving an offering. Let me, let me say some reasons practically why this, this, this is a, a mistake that I think churches are making. Uh, first, the offering... Uh, in a worship service is a moment of celebrating spiritual growth and vitality. Let me give you an example. Uh, you've got a fellow in your community uh, that's a member of your church. He's, a, he's an auto, auto mechanic, and he works 55 hours a week in a garage. And his wife, she's uh, working part-time at a preschool and trying to be mostly a stay-at-home mom. She's got 
maybe a couple of children, and you know they're like five and seven, so uh, they're just a kind of a typical family, hardworking dad, mom trying to make a part-time job work with a busy family, two little guy, two little children. So they get up on Sunday morning and uh, they, they they take their showers and clean up, put on their best clothes and. And then uh, they get in the car and stick a couple of Pop-Tarts in the kids' mouths in the back seat, you know, and they're having those on the way to church. I'm talking about just a regular family, okay? And they get to church and they come in. They maybe go to Sunday school or Bible study. And, and, and then they, they come to the worship service. And the, 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 the service has a moment in it where they receive the offering. And when the pastor prays and they begin to pass the collection baskets or plates, the husband leans over to his wife and says, have you got the check? And she pulls out of her purse, pushes aside the, 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 the wipes for the kids and the lifesavers to help them stay focused through the service. And she puts out, pulls out the bottom of that purse a, a check. And, and she puts it in the offering plate. And you say, yeah, that's pretty much what happens. That's pretty routine and pretty boring. You're missing the point entirely. For every auto mechanic that comes to your church that's a Christian that did that simple act of giving... There's a thousand of them in your community who are laying at home in bed right that same minute, totally focused on themselves and not willing to give one thin dime to God or his work. I'm telling you, the offering is a celebratory moment of spiritual growth and progress in a person's life. It says, I've grown enough to recognize God is my source. He's my provider. His work matters. And I want to put something of my life on the line in this offering plate this morning. That's what the offering can mean when it's properly understood in a worship service. And then they also, the offering is also a, a, a great opportunity for celebration of giving in a service and of the spirit of giving in a service. I was preaching at a church recently, probably about 1,000 people present, and it was a very normal service. Uh, there was some singing and some praying, and there were some videos about missions. That's what I was there to preach about. Uh, and then they got ready to receive the offering. And so as they were coming down to the end of a particular song and the, the uh, ushers moved into position, the pastor stepped to the microphone and without a lot of fanfare or any, any trying to spur the crowd along or anything like that, but just in a normal, low-key way, he said, First Baptist, it's offering time. And the congregation erupted in applause. It took me, it kind of startled me a little bit. I looked around, I thought, what is happening here? It wasn't a showy thing or a, a thing that they did just to, 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 because they had a guest. It was a normal part of their worship service. The pastor had taught them over the years that giving was a moment of joy. It was a moment of hilarity, as the Bible describes it in the New Testament. It was a, it was a moment of satisfaction. It was all of that. It was a celebratory moment. And so when he said, it's offering time, they just erupted in applause. And I asked pastor later, is this something that happens every Sunday? He said, pretty much every Sunday, because we've taught our people over the years that the offering is a celebratory moment of all that God is doing in their lives, how he's taking care of them for another week, how he's provided for them through, the, through their work, and then how they get to be a part of God's work in the world by giving part of that through our church to advance his mission. That's what we've taught them over the years, and so it's offering time is a code phrase in our church for it's a great moment to celebrate. And then the offering's another, another good thing about the offering is the offering can be a moment of teaching in your church. I know, for example, uh, church could, uh, a church does this. When they come to the offertory prayer, rather than making a perfunctory prayer by one of the pastors or someone who's done it a thousand times, they've worked to bring people out of the congregation to lead the offertory prayer. And the pastor says something like this, 
So this morning, I'd like to introduce to you the Jones family. And they're, they enjoy giving to God's work through our church, and they're going to lead our offertory prayer. And then the husband or the wife or one of the children will lead a simple prayer for the offering. Now, what does that do? Well, it, first of all, lifts up the average donor in the church and, and elevates their role in giving in the church. But it also says to everyone who's watching, <clears throat> our church is not about a few big donors or certain people who give the money. It's about all of us, including the Jones family. Next week, it's the Smith family. And then the next week, it's a single mom. And the next week, it's a, uh, a college student. But somebody who stands up and says, I enjoy giving to this ministry. Let me lead us in prayer as we give today. So the offering has these uh, celebratory aspects, these instructional aspects, and these represent, representative aspects of how God is at work in the life of a church. So I want to appeal to you to rethink the role of the offering in your Sunday worship gatherings. Now, I realize that with electronic giving and all other kinds of giving, uh, the offering has been somewhat diminished, and, and it's difficult for me because I usually just give once a month, and, and I, and I uh, give sometimes electronically and sometimes you know, in person, but I, I get all that. But still, the offering can have a moment of celebratory, instructional, representative power in a worship service as we continue that as a practice of worship. Now, God's provision comes through offerings, and we see that in this story, because in Exodus 35, 4 and 5, we see as you read through that passage that the offering was given to God, it was given freely, it was given at God's initiative, it was given in response to the need to build the tabernacle, response to need is one reason to give, and it says the offering included everyone as all the people came and participated. So as you think about the offering in your congregation, think about this pattern that I've described in the offering about the tabernacle and see if it won't help to spur you on to maybe a better use of that time in public worship gatherings. So how does God finance his work? Well, he owns and controls everything, everything. But he also allows need, and he allows need for some specific purposes I've outlined today. And there's probably a dozen more I didn't have time for in the podcast, but God allows need for some specific reasons. It's not that he doesn't have provision. It's that he withholds it for a season for a particular need to be, or for a particular reason to be accomplished before he meets the need. And then when God meets needs, he does, th does so through the tithes and offerings of his people. So as we model stewardship and develop stewards, we lead them to understand that the offering is a high and holy moment, a significant moment of celebration and instruction and of representative uh, giving to God what he has blessed us with, that we might be part of what he's doing in our world. So that's how God finances his work. It's an opportunity for us to develop stewards, to model stewardship, and to see God provide in ways that are supernatural and spur us on in our faith and in our devotion to him. It's all part of being a leader, leading people in relationship to ministry finance. So get busy doing it. Lead on.